This is Thank You Heartbreak. Hi, everyone. I'm Chelsea Lee Trescott. As a breakup coach, relationship advice columnist, and the founder of Break Upward, Chelsea is passionate about human beings and their stories. She talks to people about their journeys in love, growth, heartbreak, revelations, and every wound and lesson along the way. This podcast shines a light on heartbreak, showing you that the most crushing experiences are also your greatest opportunity to become meaningful, relatable human beings. Now, let's get to the heart of it. Hi, everyone. This is Chelsea Lee Truscott, breakup coach and podcast host of Thank You Heartbreak, and this is episode 142 with Tyra Manning. This is the last episode of this decade, and I saw today through Facebook memories where I was at this time last year with Thank You Heartbreak, and I have done a 100 episodes within a year, which blows my mind. It also just takes my breath away, which makes me think I, I need to reconnect. I need to reconnect with this. I think that is also what happens when you're going into a new year. I think we should kind of check in with ourselves more often than once a year, but it does happen right before a new year is approaching. We ask ourselves maybe what we're feeling distant from, how we want to feel. Actually, let me just say, more often than not, I remember Danielle Laporte was the first person that kind of put this in my mind, at least, like really spelled it out. One of her books, The Desire Map. And it's really about how so often we think that we're chasing something. So once we have, you know, the house or once we have the degree or the relationship, really, then we will feel a certain way. And we think about the feeling after the fact and we focus on that thing, whatever that is. But really, we need to be focused on what feeling we're really chasing? Like, what do we think we're going to get from that house? Is it safety? Is it prestige? Is it freedom? Is it a sense of being home and having this identity within? From a relationship, do we think that we're going to get validation, again, like security? Is it going to be that we have a person, a partner to explore our life with? Like, what feeling are we looking for from these things? And rather than waiting for the thing, we start exploring the feeling. So I think also with Thank You Heartbreak, that's a big question for myself. You know, what feeling am I looking to have? Of course, it's always feeling connected to who I'm speaking to. Always, always. And I want to be in awe of the stories that I'm hearing, which happens quite easily where I feel moved. But I was watching Oprah on Super Soul Sunday just yesterday, and it was with Mitch Album. I think I'm saying his name wrong. He's known for Tuesdays with Maury. The book that really hit a chord within me, which I really recommend, is One More Day. And as I was listening to them, I was like, listen, I know that what she does, the conversations she has under that oak tree with these spiritual teachers isn't glamorous. I always got to go back to this because I feel like with Instagram and today's world, everything is about glamorizing something like glamorizing heartbreak would be one example. And like her conversations aren't glamorous. They're just human. They're raw. They're kind of showing us, you know, the questions we might ask ourselves when we're on our deathbed, things that people probably don't want to sit and think about. And yet on Sunday, Somehow she feels like these are when we should be having these conversations. Anyway, they're life conversations or conversations about our life. And they're calming. And I'm like, that's what I want. That's always what I've wanted. I want to be a young person that's having those conversations right now. Again, going into 2020 with Thank You Heartbreak, I want more of that. And I want the visual component. I want to encourage myself to finally do that. But another thing is, and I think maybe a lot of us want this in life, is I want to make sure that I still feel like I'm thriving after something, that I'm exceeding myself or I'm not getting too comfortable. That's the biggest thing, that I'm not getting too comfortable with where I'm at with the podcast. And, you know, maybe comfort is a good thing. But for me, I just know that it's important to keep going with it. And so one avenue is, I think it would be important to really start answering questions that support people in heartbreak. Because a lot of people that are coming to this, they're coming because they're in the midst of this and they are looking for support, perspective, and help. And sometimes people don't find that by listening to an hour conversation. They don't want to really feel maybe united. They want to feel instructed. So anyway, that was a tangent but some things that I am thinking about. 
right now I'm in Palm Beach. I'm at my sister's place. And I'm in a space where I have been many times when I've started or, you know, interviewed people on this podcast. And it seems like it's been pivotal, you know, moments, really. I remember having many interviews back to back and feeling like it was me really trying to pivot, even embrace how I was as an interviewer and having these conversations. But more than that, I remember that I came up with thank you heartbreak. Those three words while I was sitting at my sister's place. I was also in a position where I felt like, wow, my advice column is really taking off. I'm in this new relationship and I was starting to feel comfortable and I didn't want to become complacent. I just knew within myself that there was something more. And it was really that I wanted to get away from it just being about me. Go figure. I'm talking about myself. And how could I make it about others? I was really starting to get this platform and how instead of making it more narratives about myself, could I use the bit of platform that I have, use the spotlight and put it on other people's stories. So less about me, more about others. And I've always found that that is the greatest decision that I've ever made is really to make it less about myself. So I was back in Miami for the holidays and to piggyback off of episode 141, 141, where I spoke about my father and it was a bit emotional and I was talking about how he was slowing down and he was tired. I have to say, I have to just come clean about this, is that while I was on vacation, my father was much better. I didn't mention that he was sick while in New York and I think that was part of the reason that he was slower. He was much more himself and the reality is, is that Often I feel like I just want to sleep. I just want to take a nap. And I've spoken about this a lot over the podcast. I definitely speak about it in this episode, actually. How I always felt growing up that I wasn't allowed to feel tired and how this has haunted me throughout my life. Like, what does it mean to feel tired? And I've battled with this forever. And so I know I was emotional about my dad. And the truth is he is slowing down and he will more. So that was all very real. But also there's something within me that whenever I feel slower, I judge myself and I want to continue to help myself in the process of that. And then also find the things that keep me feeling alive. This episode is about stories, the stories that we have, the moments we might pass over, the people that have been important to us and what it is to really revisit those memories. And sometimes a memory will come to us because we pass something in a grocery store. For me, it's often the signature scent that will take me back to a person or people with music. It takes them back to a moment in their life. This episode is a lot about the stories we tell and the importance and how that is often encourages someone to tell their own stories, but also to see themselves. And that in the process of telling stories, we identify the mentors that we've had in our life. And then we can become these invisible mentors really to the people that read us or listen to us, yada, yada, yada. And I couldn't agree or identify more with that. But I have to tell you this other like layer of storytelling. So I've always looked into my past. I've always been a nostalgic person. And I'm someone that has wanted to really revisit and play old home videos. My dad always had a camera tied to his neck, was always recording everything. I always was like, I gotta watch them when I'm in Miami. And I never would. I thought the process would be much more difficult. I was by myself. It literally took like two seconds. Just put the DVD in. And Paris came right up in 1992. To see that footage was just astounding, especially I I had just been back during the summer. But in terms of stories, I think that we can become fixated. I mean, I talk a lot about who I was at 10. Well, 1992, I believe, was when I was 10. And I think about that Paris trip a lot in my mind, like wanting to be that person that I was so full of life and energy and character and all this stuff. And oh my God, watching this footage, it was like watching a completely different trip and not just a trip, like a different person, myself interacting with the trip or being on the trip. I couldn't get over how like quiet I was, how my sister was really the more talkative one, how I was really like independent and pulled away from my parents. My dad would just follow me in France with the camera and I was doing like the oddest shit, like so weird and just kicking rocks and just would ask him to stop filming. And and there's times like I would roll my eyes. I'm like, who is this girl? She's like awful. And what was interesting about it, I was telling my sister, she's like, that kind of sounds like us now. And I'm like, bingo. That does sound like us now. I heard my parents kind of had this like mini fight. I was like, oh my God, if I close my eyes and just heard that, I've heard that my whole life. They've had this sort of 
banter back and forth this fight our whole lives if I saw my sister, she was she's always animated with my family, always. She's always smiling and just naturally on and inclusive and welcoming and playing to my family. And I guess me, I've always been a little bit more pulled off. And I thought that that was a recent thing and I've beaten myself up for it, like on trips, like when they were just in New York. And I've, yeah, I've beaten myself up for that, thinking that this was something new, like what's become of me? What has become of me? And I saw this video and in a way it was like very odd. I didn't like that I was that way, but I was like, dude, maybe I've just been this. And how freeing to realize that like you can stop beating yourself up now because it's not that you've changed drastically. You just are seeing yourself with adult eyes. And because of that, it will feel like you're embracing like this new person but it's really just, it's adult eyes and you're seeing yourself as you were actually as a kid. So yeah, that was just a different approach. Again, we will write our stories, we will share these memories and that is one layer and it has us go deep. But then there's something really to be said about if we are able to, like through videos, to see ourselves, to see, to watch, to observe ourselves. And how does that align with how we said that we were feeling at the time, how we felt in terms of others, like in relation to others. By observing ourselves, how does that compare to what we said or to what we say we're feeling in the moment, to where our mind is? Food for thought, happy almost 2020, and to however you have lived out 2019. Ask yourself, what moments did I surprise myself in? Where did I surprise myself in the last decade? Where was I starting? Like, what promises was I making in 2010? What relationship was I in in 2010? And where am I now? What has happened since that time? What sort of story has existed within that decade, just within romance? Then think within, like, yourself. Um, how you feel inside your home, how you are with friends. Are you still talking to the same friends? Do you reach out more? And what is the energy that you bring into the room a decade later? Does that feel more aligned with you? Do you feel like you've gotten back to yourself or do you feel like you've created a new self? What has been compromised in that process and what have you gained in that process? As always, what is the upside of the moments that have hurt you, that have broken you, that have made you feel like you're displaced? What have you gained? What is the upside from the moments that a lot of people feel like, yeah, that was you when you were really down? Thank you again for being with me through this journey, through this project, and through my years. Bye, everyone. I'm doing a presentation at the independent bookstore in San Antonio at the Pro Brewery called The Twig, and then I'm going to Chicago, where I was school superintendent and doing four different venues there. Uh, have you ever met or heard of Karen Kelt? No. When you told me about your dad, I thought about this. There's about maybe three paragraphs. I'll go real fast. Yeah, I'd read them. I've been talking about why it's important to write your stories. Mm-hmm. That it brings people closer together. We find out we have more alike than different. And it helps us heal. And reminds us about the lovely things that have happened in our life as well. So in this piece I'm going to be presenting, I'm talking to the audience about the importance of self-expression and how telling your stories and writing your stories can be a healing thing. And then I wrote, it wasn't until I was an adult that I came to realize that my mother, who lived well into her 80s, had amazing stories to share. I suggested to her that she write them down, and we had them produced into a beautiful shutterfly-bound book. Then, when my relatives heard about it after her death, they wanted their own copy as a form of remembrance. Now, grandchildren and other family members who never even met her can access her voice as she describes what life was like growing up on the farm in the early 20th century. Her grandchildren and my cousin's children all love that book because it represents part of our collective heritage, our shared DNA. It serves as a bridge spanning the widening gap between each rising generation and hers. 
I love that. I mean, it reminds me of my grandfather. When his wife died, my grandmother, he started writing and he calls them his musings and he, he's 98 and a half now. And he still goes to like writing classes, but he has written all these stories. Like every single day, he gets them bound as well. And he says that they're really for his children and their children. But I think part of it is as you get older and maybe just his whole life, maybe the generation he was in, I guess it was, was it the silent generation, the quiet generation, but that he never has felt maybe like that people asked him what his story was, Uh but then maybe realizing that people will wonder one day. They would have wanted to ask certain questions that when you're alive, don't get asked. Mm -hmm. So you take it upon yourself as a writer, even if you're not a published author, Mm -hmm. to start answering some of the questions that you feel like people have missed out on asking. That's really an important point. I don't know how much you know about my book, but at the end of every chapter, I wrote them because when I first published Where the Water Meets the Sand and it won the first prize for memoir by the independent book publishing, people would say to me, how did you write that book? And Mm -hmm. I said, I told my stories and you have stories and your stories are important. And when you share them, we find them more alike than different. But the other nice thing, I think, is that when you write your stories, I have a little paragraph in in this book of the introduction when I'm trying to, in the introduction, get people to be interested in writing their own stories. And I wrote, sometimes the most important stories are the ones that pop into our mind when we least expect them. They're often spurred by seeing or doing something that reminds us of a particular event or person. Mm. I didn't tend to think about my grandfather, Papa, who grew watermelon in West Texas. But when I saw watermelon in the grocery store recently, it brought back memories of when I was a small child searching with Papa for the best watermelon in the patch. He said, hey, Tyra, he grinned as he broke the watermelon in half, plunged his huge hand into the center and pulled out the sweet, dripping red heart. Sit here, he lifted me up into the bumper of his truck. This is the best eaten there is. So you can tell I love to write. I do. I also love hearing you read it. It really brings a different dimension to it. I also love the part when, you know, you you have a whole chapter about mentors and Mm -hmm. also you really highlight, and we'll get to that, the importance of young kids talking to their quote-unquote elders. I feel like even in my most isolated times, whenever I would fly back home and I would be around my parents' friends, it always brought that out of me. It always showed me that eventually I could get my voice back. So I've always just appreciated so much talking to people that are older than me. But something that you said about your grandfather, and I loved this scene, was when you were sad about your mom being away and how he took you into uh, the fields to show you that you know, how everything should be a straight line. And he was trying to talk to you about how your mom would be back soon and not to worry. And the part about the rabbits, how we went around, yeah, that it wasn't a straight line. And you're like, you said it was supposed to be straight. And his point being that what looks right and seems right ain't always right. And that sometimes you make exceptions. The whole point was that he went around this patch and tell me if I'm wrong, in order to not disturb or, you know, kill a rabbit's nest. Absolutely, that's what he did. And I said, but Grandpa, I thought you said that rabbits chewed on the cotton. And he said, oh, they didn't eat much. (laughs) Yeah. I'm curious about that piece of advice, though. And maybe in terms of relationships, like people that are dating or what looks right and seems right ain't always right. Is there some advice or could you expound upon that in terms of relationships, romantic relationships? Well, maybe not. In this case, maybe not romantic. But the first thing when you started asking me that, I'm a former junior high teacher, a former junior uh, high principal of schools and a former school superintendent. And there would be times when even as superintendent that perhaps a teacher would be furious And when I was principal, and they'd bring a child down to the office, and they were good people, but they just had their fill that day. And um, in some cases, they'd want that child to be punished. And I would say, well, a chance to visit with them a little bit. I know that you couldn't do that if there was a disruption in the class, and you still had children that you were teaching. And so then I'd talk to that child, 
And sometimes not letting them have a pass. We had certain rules and standards. And, and yet at the same time, some children didn't have the same opportunities as others, or they didn't know how to act as well. You know what I mean? I was superintendent of very wealthy systems and in very poor systems, particularly as teacher. And so that what looks right, seems right, may not be right, was that you don't just meet out consequences across the board exactly the same. It mm-hmm. does end on the circumstances and the human being or the animal or the or nature, how you take care of people. Mm. And that doesn't mean they don't understand that there are some consequences or that they, they'll do it different next time. But it's really important. It's like the lady, the mentors matter. You mentioned that one, the chicken lady. I love the chicken lady. <laughs> What was interesting, it was a similar message. What you see is not always what you get. Right, exactly. Very similar messages across the board. Uh Absolutely. And my dad had died when I was nine. And when when she mentioned that her husband only bought a car from my father, Mm. it was huge to me because I was looking for someone. I was looking for another adult, and I got in trouble a lot as after daddy died in junior high school, and I was acting out. This lady was a classy little old lady who Uh took time for me. And she told me she didn't have very many visitors, and it really made a difference that I came to see her. (laughs) She was a really special lady. But that's so interesting. Okay, so it made a difference that you came to see her. And I feel like, again, across the board, I feel like you've understood that. So as a principal, for example, the story about the woman, well, she wasn't a woman, she was a girl. I mean, I guess she was 15 years old and she was coming late to class. Mm-hmm. And when you try to talk to her about it, she brushed it off. Like she had something that she didn't want to say. And mm-hmm. essentially she ended up saying she's late to class because she has, she has a child that she has to care for. Mm-hmm. And instead of punishing her again, like you said that, you know, you don't do just the same thing to everyone. You right. said, how about we talk about it over lunch or you can make up the hours that, you know, however long that you're missing with me over lunch. And lunch has been such an important part of my life. Like, honestly, that's how I got healed with my eating disorder. That's how I began speaking again. My dad would take me out to lunches with people, like his clients, his friends, and I learned how to start interacting again. It was such an important part of my life. So I loved seeing how you use that time to kind of bring this girl back to life. And yet you said that if only she knew what she had given you, Right. Yeah. She was 15. Mm -hmm. And when I was 16, I got pregnant. Yeah. Teenage mother. So for me, I would have done that for anyone, even if that hadn't happened to me. But it was a way to give back. Yeah. I was so amazed by her strength she had to walk that baby to the babysitter and come on in and still come to school. Me too. Yeah. I'm like, what's the deal? Like, why is it hard for me to get up in the morning and get up? <laughs> like, superhuman strength. It's, I was so impressed. Yeah, I was too. I was really impressed with her. And she was, she was bitter and had a bad attitude when she first came to class. And over the semester until she graduated to go to the high school, she was a ninth grader. Her whole demeanor changed. Yeah, you said she started to smile. Yes, yeah, she did. And she'd tell me stories and she'd... Every once in a while, she would say, do you know what my baby did? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You know. She didn't feel ashamed, probably. No, no. You shared something about your eating disorder in my book. You know that I had eating disorder as well. Yeah. When I went to the Menninger Clinic, that was a big part of my hospitalization. Yeah, no, I thought about how, I don't even know the words for it, really, but I hear stories and, you know, through my podcast too and through certain books I've read, but about people that ended up having to be hospitalized for it. Mm-hmm. And I feel fortunate that I never got to that place. I remember the threat of that really scaring me and I think eventually waking me up. Like I had finally made it to New York and the, this threat that if I lost any more weight, I would be hospitalized. I was like, oh my God, I like died to get here. Like I lost all this weight. Uh Because 
I was in a place where nothing was happening. So I thought I'd finally overcome my mm-hmm. issue with my weight only, you know, I ended up with an eating disorder. So it's mm-hmm. like, I'm finally where I've struggled to be. Be, yes. Yeah, to be taken out of that was terrifying. And I'm also curious, like, just to go off topic a little bit, I mean, not exactly, but I remember thinking in New York, people were so nasty to me. And I I don't mean that honestly in a bad way. I mean, they were honest. I'm so fortunate that people said certain comments. I'm so fortunate that young kids chased me and made, Mm -hmm. like would taunt me that people wouldn't seat me at restaurants because it made me face really where I was at. The fact that I couldn't live where I so badly wanted to live again was a wake up call. Mm-hmm. But um, I remember feeling like I was never being bullied, that I was simply someone that was feared. That it was like, you know, oh. we're all like a few steps away from falling out of our own care. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering about you, like, I don't know if you ever saw remarks or, or ever felt like people were watching you. And did you feel like you were bullied or did you feel like you were feared or, or what did you feel from other people? As a teenager, I was very angry, Chelsea, when my father died. I was only nine and I had an older brother who's four years older than I. And mother and daddy had this thing. Tyra was daddy's little girl and Rodney was mother's little boy. Mm-hmm. And, um, They never intended to make us feel different. But I, for me, that's who I belong to is my daddy. Yeah. And and when he died, I grew up in far west Texas and the New Mexico line where they sell beer about 30 miles away. And I started driving over. There was a rule then that in Texas, you had to get your driver's license. The school taught it to you and it was part of a class uh, when you were 14. So I would borrow my mother's car to go to the library and study, that's in quotes, because what I mean (laughs) (laughs) was I would go over and and buy beer, and I would go out to a jack pump where they are pumping oil after the oil rig's gone and they pump it, and um, listen, the the popular music station for teenagers was KOMA, Oklahoma City, Mm -hmm. and I'd just sit there and drink beer until I was lucky if I could get home, Um, just to try to go away, and then I started getting, uh, drinking all that beer, started getting fat, and, and I felt bad about that. And so that's wow. when I started the bulimia, eating and throwing up. And as time went on, I had three things. And one was um, the eating disorder, and one was the addiction to alcohol, and the other one was um, was cutting. They all kind of connected to each other. Right. It felt terrible. I felt like I wasn't worthy. But the Miniger Clinic was wonderful, and, and I wasn't able to be with Larry very long, but he taught me that I was just right. I mean, there's so much to say there. It's almost like, you know, your husband, like you said, like you weren't with him long, but it's like he got you into recovery because he was a part of... Part of the Air Force. The Air Force, yeah. yeah. So because it paid for that, yes. you were able to go there. Yes. It's almost like right. you know, without him, what would have happened? Even though things happened right. after you left and there was still, it was still like right. an uphill battle. But I'm curious about, you said that you didn't feel worthy. And, and this is something that a lot of people say. What did you think you weren't worthy of? Well, when my father died and I adored him and yeah. there was just this connection between my mother and my brother, but not me and my mother. Yeah. Uh, and, they didn't do that on purpose, but that's what happened. And then mother was pregnant. And, and so our baby sister came along. Daddy died in June and she was born in August. Then uh, I was the middle child and I did the babysitting. I just felt lost and, um, and that I adored the baby, um, but I didn't get to you know, then I, I was very protective of her. And then I thought I should be the mother, <laughs> you know, and, I, and that didn't work. I mean, you know, I wasn't old enough to be in charge, but so I, I just had a lot of losses in a period of time. And I think, you know, I, both of my grandfathers died and before I was nine and, and all of those things happened. And, um, but dad and mother were gone so many times looking for a cure for daddy's heart disease. And I was stayed with relatives. So I think I just thought I was 
honestly, I, I, I thought that boys were better and, and I was supposed to fit in. And you thought I, boys were better? I didn't think they were, but I thought they unfairly got a lot more appreciation. Ah, oh, I see, I see. I didn't think they were better, but in the culture that I lived in, it felt that way to me. And I felt set aside. I'm not saying that was really what happened, but it's how I felt as a teenager and a child after daddy left. So when Larry went to Vietnam, I, um, having lost dad and my, and my, my grandfather, the one with the watermelon patch, I was so afraid that something would happen to him. And of course he was at war, so there was a good chance it might. And I just became clinically depressed. And I was trying to finish my bachelor's at Texas Tech University. And, and I started seeing a psychiatrist. And he said to me, Tyra, you can go to the famous Menager Clinic and the Air Force will pay for it and you'll get better a lot faster. And I wanted to go. I wanted to go. The big bad thing about it was that our baby wasn't even two. Right. And my mother was a school teacher, but the babysitter that took care of her while I went to school during the day, I had been her flower girl <laughs> at her wedding and I knew these people and she stayed with them while I went to school. And so we decided that she would stay with them when I went to Menninger because mother would be going to school and teaching and it would be somebody else. So I think that was a miracle that I could go there to that place that was so wonderful and that it was so sad when Larry died, but I was in the best place I could be. But it was a lot of loss. And, you know, in that story in the where the water meets the sand, he and I, he was going to train on the, and the baby was with us uh, when he was training on the forward air controller um, down in Florida. And we used to put her to bed and sit out on the, the water that where yeah. your feet hang out and, and trail our feet and toes. In the, and he said, if I don't come home, I want to be buried at Arlington Tower. His dad was a chief master sergeant. And I said, okay, Larry, you know, you never think. Yeah. <laughs> and so he was killed while I was at Ninger. But he had said he wanted to be buried at Arlington and his remains didn't come home. And so that always bothered me. I went on and did all these things and, and had great opportunities, and as did Laura. And, um, and then in 2007, we both got a call from the United States Air Force and his remains had been rescued in Laos. His mother had given her DNA in case something ever turned up before she died. And we had that funeral at Arlington. <laughs> I was just so impressed that they never gave up searching for the remains. Yes, they're still doing that. They're still doing that. And at that time, I didn't know, we didn't know as a citizenry that we were flying in Laos. But when we went, when Larry's funeral was at Arlington, all these men that flew with him came and I had retired from the school board. It was on a Memorial day and I had teachers and board members and it was just a huge recognition of his work and mm -hmm. his life. But the best thing was that the men who flew with him in Vietnam out of, it was out of Da Nang, but they were flying these little planes that flew about 500 feet above the ground, low and slow, the safe landing zone to pick up the special forces out of the jungle. And they could tell Laura, they told her about her dad carrying her photograph in his flight suit. And even though she was an adult and all that, it was just touching, just so important. The miracle. How old was she when she heard those stories? She didn't hear the stories till she was at the funeral at Arlington from those guys that told her. Yeah. And how old was she then? She was 34. Wow. Unreal. And, and how did she respond at 34 to those stories? Did oh, she feel connected to it? Absolutely. She really didn't know anybody except for me and my family who knew Larry. And there was a part of her childhood that was very difficult because I was in the hospital at one point and he was in war, at the war. At the war. <laughs> at, the, at the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> but so that was huge, you know, just huge. And it made a difference. And she would sit and listen to their stories and ask them more. And they were so gentle and so patient. And it was really, really special. Once again, the importance of sharing stories to think that he wasn't there to talk to her about it. And yet it was still important for her to hear from someone else that was around Absolutely. to know about it. Yes. 
And, you know, it meant so much to me and to her. We talked about it a lot because they flew us to the Joint POW Accounting Command in Hawaii. It's moved to the States now. But And, you know, we saw Larry's remains. I touched them. And we escorted with a full military group. We were escorted back to Washington, to Arlington for that funeral. And the appreciation mm. of the people who work on that science, trying to match remains wow. and figure out who's who, um, it's stunning and so appreciative. And what was also so interesting is when we first got there and our escort would take us around and there would be people sitting at computer screens and doing work and checking on remains and looking under microscopes. And our escort would say, this is Lieutenant Hull's family. Every one of them had a, oh, I know them, look on their face and said, we're so happy that we could find your husband's remains. I mean, it was personal with those people. People like that don't get recognized, you know. At all. You're right. I'm curious about, I don't know how to actually ask this question, but when you hadn't had his remains back, was mm-hmm. it the feeling that he was out there in the world, like forgotten, he couldn't be found? Or was it really that you wanted to honor his wish to be buried somewhere? It was more that I wanted to honor that wish. Mm. It was the last thing that I could do. But in addition, those two questions kind of went together because it was honorable. When Lear was first killed and I got better and then got used to my life a little bit, and didn't think about it all the time. I worried about, in fact, I wrote a poem. Uh, I think, yeah, that poem is in- uh, Is in the book, yeah. yeah. And I didn't, it, this sounds silly, but I didn't want his remains strewn all over the ground. It seemed disrespectful. And, um, and so that poem really was just sort of a, I wrote it the night that they said his remains were coming home and called me. Stayed up and wrote it on my front porch. <laughs> it was, and it just sort of came out. I didn't think about it. Mm-hmm. I didn't think, what words should I use? It's just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. It was so beautiful. I also, I don't know how you feel, Chessie, but I feel that people we've loved and have gone on have passed. In my soul, in my heart, I feel like they're never really gone. The physical container, but if you've loved somebody and they were there for you, and and you. You learn things from them and you agreed with them about some things that they formed your life as you move forward, just like your parents did. You know what I'm saying? I definitely agree with the fact that they formed your life. And in terms of, I think you use the word that it's just disrespectful, like to think of like the bones thrown all Mm -hmm. over you know, the floor. Mm-hmm. I think it's disrespectful to not honor the relationships that we've had, right. people that we've loved, even, you know, I always say like at one point they captured your heart. Right. To act like they mean nothing now seems ludicrous. It seems disrespectful to the very thing that's shaped you. I agree. Because you wouldn't have been with them if there wasn't something there that, that you learned from them and carried with you, even if you weren't together anymore. And hopefully they carry part of you in their heart too. Right. Which is something that, you know, you can't control. It's like, I'd love to think that every boyfriend that I've had, that they look back and they think that they love better now because of our relationship. Or it's like, I wonder what are the lines that, you know, sometimes I think that some relationships, you know, you're with someone for two years and I realize, oh my God, all I remember is one line that they said was the relationship only meant to give me in a way like that line. Is that the line that push me to the next level? Or was that the message that was supposed to be delivered for two years? And I wonder, maybe it sounds egotistical, but I'm like, what is the one line that I had that has stuck with someone? I wish we had those answers. I wish that we knew that, you know, a relationship is powerful enough to the things that we say, there's a line that carries in someone, whether it's a friend or some, a stranger that we meet, a driver that we have. 
You know, I wish that we all cared a little bit more, knew to care more about the things that we say and the experiences that we share. But people these days just act like people are replaceable or we have to forget something in order to get over it. And therefore, in that process of having that feeling or kind of seeking that direction that we need to forget or replace, we kind of forget that that the moments that we share are powerful and the energy that we exchange is not meant to be lost after someone's gone. I agree with that. I think the universe comes up to meet you. And I think that there's a reason that someone's in your life and that your paths have, have crossed. You may make a decision that that was a great cup of coffee and I enjoyed visiting with them, but I may not even see him again. Some of the people I've had the, some of the best conversations with are in the airport and I never see him again. I know, right? One hundred percent. I'm in so fact, happy. You tell people me. things you wouldn't tell somebody. <laughs> I had to tell you, I am so happy that I started talking to the people that sit next to me yes. in an airplane because I remember this whole thing, you know, I'd hear from people all the time that people are just so annoyed by people that sit next to them that talk on an airplane. And I'm like, I'm so happy that I'm not that person anymore because some of the connections that I've still kept to this day because mm-hmm. I started getting curious about of all the people in this world, why are they seated next to me? Mm-hmm. Of all the decisions and choices they've made in their life, they've chosen to get on the same flight, taking them to the same place. Like maybe this is just like you said, maybe the universe is putting someone and seeing the next was for a reason, but it's on us to be curious about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think things happen by mistake. Mm-hmm. I don't. Not everything that happens is huge. Right. But on the other hand, some of those days when nothing special happens is really relaxing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like the universe gives you a rest for a while. (laughs) I love that. Uh Have you ever been hard on yourself about resting? It's something that I've been so mean toward myself about. If I feel tired or, you know, my whole life I was told I wasn't allowed to take a nap. Why were you told you couldn't take a nap? I'll never forget. And though I was talking to my dad in the car the other day, and he was telling me about how he wishes his life just had been simpler and he had kept it simple. And I go, well, you should write down what a simple day would be and try to live that day or, you know, back to back and see how you feel about it. I go, so what would a simple day look like? And I mean, the the day was like jam packed with things, but one of the things was after he got back from riding a bike, going fishing and having a simple lunch with my mom that he would take a nap. And I was like, oh my God, this is coming from someone that told me my whole life (laughs) anyone that naps is depressed. And I'll never forget when I was a young kid, my dad came into my room and he looked at me over the bed and he said, anyone that naps is depressed in life. And you know, you can't be depressed. And I knew at the time, even as a young child, that he was talking about my mother, that my mother had, you know, a back issue, you know, an invisible pain that I don't know that we all believed growing up. Mm-hmm. And he retired to the bedroom. So my sister and I had to come in and kind of be the the wife and, and be the mm-hmm. person that went out and went fishing and went camping and went on the car rides. But my mom was in bed sleeping. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a message that he passed down to us that, that don't you dare pull mm-hmm. away from people and go to your bed. Mm-hmm. pull away from your life. Mm-hmm. And it's been a hard thing for me to get over. Because yeah. Well, I, my soul is um, active and moves forward and it's my spirit. You know, I'm upbeat. My body challenges me. I have had cancer since 2006, but I have the best kind. I, I have chronic lymphocytic leukemia and some days I get tired. So, I wake up in the morning at the same time usually, and I go, oh, I'm so tired. And then something happens. It's just kind of like somebody turns on my brain, goes, click, come on, old body. We got stuff to do today. (laughs) And I'm out of bed and off and running and feel so good about it. If I had laid in bed, I would have, unless I was sound asleep and was, you know, really, you know, I I feel bored and awful. Because I have a lot to do and I want to get it all done, you know? So, I mean, I remember um, in your book when you were in the depths of cutting and uh-huh. bulimia and how you would say that 
part of like, you know, the rush that would overcome you is adrenaline, but then it would wipe you out enough Mm -hmm. to put you to sleep. Right. Mm -hmm. And again, you just said that if you were in bed all day, conscious, you'd be Mm -hmm. feeling really bad about yourself. But if Mm -hmm. you were knocked out, that would be okay. And I feel like when you were younger, you would do enough things to knock you out. Yep. And you know, the other thing, uh, when I spoke to those social workers, when the Minnegar people because I'd write stories after I left and they invited me to speak to social workers in um, Colorado at a conference that were going to earn their CEU. And so I talked a little bit about my story and then opened it up for questions. And there was a large group there, I'd say 250. And um, a lady asked me, uh, she said on their unit uh, where they was all girls, most of them teenage girls, And she said that um, they were having a dilemma on the unit. And the dilemma was whether or not to lock the bathroom stalls. Remember that part? Right. Go on. Tell us. The lady said, well, you know, if we don't lock the door, then they're going to feel like we don't trust them or something to that effect. And then another lady shared another point of view. And I just listened to these social workers talk for a while. And finally, I said something to this effect. When you leave the door unlocked and you know these girls are bulimic, then you're not taking care of them Mm. because they're going to give in and Mm. pray to the toilet, get on their knees and throw up. And then they have the horrible disgrace of having vomit all over the bathroom and trying to get it cleaned up before somebody comes in and sees. Whereas if you lock them, they know that they're in a safe place and you're taking care of them until they can take care of themselves. And I can't tell you how many people came up and thanked me for that. It was like, it was unkind to lock the doors, you know? Unkind, yeah. Yeah, and it saved them from their addiction one more time. And then they could talk about how they were feeling to the person who unlocked the door for them, you know? Well, it's really interesting about that, though, because it's basically encouraging someone to sit in the discomfort. In addiction, you know, you're going to keep on doing what you've been doing. That's how addiction continues. So the pattern has to be disrupted. And by not disrupting the pattern, it is enabling. I think by Mm -hmm. keeping the doors unlocked, it's saying that we know what you do here and we're going to look the other way, I guess. Right. Yeah. And to me, that means we don't really care. Wow. You know, back in the day, that's what that meant to me. I think the other thing when you're talking, the two of us are talking about addictions, a lot of people still to this day don't realize that addictions are not just alcohol or drugs, but they're bulimia and they're cutting. And I can remember cutting myself so deeply that I thought I'm going to have to go to the emergency room. I did not want to go because, and I would drive myself, but I was treated like, oh my God, somebody here is cutting on themselves and we've got all these sick people here. Really? Yeah. And that was so humiliating because I had given in to it. And if I were a doctor or a nurse, I may have felt the same way. But the cutting at that time wasn't perceived as part of an illness. Or maybe it was, but you didn't talk about it. I don't know. Well, people are very different about an illness that they think is self-inflicted. You're exactly right. And what's hard is that because you feel humiliated or brushed aside or overlooked, it's like, what is it going to take to be taken seriously? Mm -hmm. You know, I think that, unfortunately, but like being 80 pounds... I mean, yeah, you can talk to someone about how your weight bothers you or this is a problem, but if people don't see it, they don't take it seriously, right? right? It's easy to overlook. And it was almost like, wow, did I really have to be 80 pounds to even show myself how bad something was? Mm -hmm. See, it's like with bulimia, it's different because a lot of the times it's hidden or people don't see it, but like anorexia is like right in your Mm -hmm. face and it's unbelievable 
how disrespectful people are about it. People don't know how to be soft towards someone that is struggling a lot of the times. I mean, even people that were quote unquote friends or who, who had read my blog and always wanted to meet me and we'd meet in New York. I mean, it would just be blurted out of them. Like it would just, and I remember them being so shocked by the things that they would say, but they couldn't help themselves, but to be terrified of me and have to say it. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, that was something that, again, it was self-inflicted. But I think that people also glamorize anorexia up into a point because they think, oh my God, look how much self-control this person has. And Mm -hmm. people want control. They want to see someone that sees something through. It just, it's a weird, very weird world. And when you're inside of it, inside of like any addiction. It's so scary because you can see how wrong something is for you. Mm -hmm. And you can be terrified of how deep your cuts are, like Mm -hmm. how deep it's all gotten. I think the thing that really helped me, I quit cutting and quit being bulimic and all of that. But it's like I, each time I started a new addiction, Mm -hmm. uh, for the most part, I threw away the old one. Right. And each time I started a new addiction, it wasn't as awful as the other one that I traded in. It's like I was trading them in. So that by the time I decided to get sober and I went to a Alcoholics Anonymous group, it was like, oh, you know, I'm doing better because I'm in a place where there are other people like me and I can talk about it, you know. But I was replacing addictions with one thing to the mm. next thing to the next thing. Wow. And it wasn't as lonely. And I found a place that I could talk, that I felt safe talking. You think that was really the turning point for you? I was already better, but I still had that drinking addiction. I wasn't bulimic and I wasn't cutting, but but always in my soul, I just felt like I wasn't at peace. Yeah. There were still jagged areas in my soul. At that age, when you went into that AA meeting, did you think about yourself as a young girl after your dad had died and going in? Yes. Talked about it. You when talked- I was asked, I'm a pretty good speaker and... So if you had a Saturday night open speaker and they asked me to speak, mm-hmm. I always talked about losing my dad. Yeah. So the times you were dealing with your anorexia and getting so thin, something was going on with you that that made you feel however you felt you needed to feel. Mm-hmm. And people, people who haven't had those kinds of experiences, oftentimes, unless they're medical people or they've studied or they've loved someone who has, they don't mean to be, they're not purposely that way, but they're not understanding. And sometimes they're just really mean about it. Just stop, right. just stop it. Just don't do it anymore. You know? Mm. And uh, so that, I think that's important, but I feel forever grateful because I, I have those things behind me and, and yet I will never forget them. And I learned some lessons. Like you said, Chelsea, I, I've learned some lessons as a result of those experiences They've made me more empathetic to people and they've made me more sure, more convinced that I can take care of things. And if I need help, I know where to go. Yeah. I remember thinking like, my God, at times when things were challenging, like Mm -hmm. when I was saying like, I would feel tired or something. I'm like, oh my God, if I could overcome an eating disorder, Mm -hmm. if I could overcome an addiction of eight years to Adderall and one Mm -hmm. day stop, I can do this. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you want to forget the worst times right. in your life, the worst right. parts of you, but sometimes the worst parts of you right. that you overcome show you just how strong you are. Right. For me, it's, you know, I don't regret anything, the choices I made or, or how I mm-hmm. fell or I let things slip too long. Mm-hmm. You said like you became more empathetic. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like, my God, it really brought me down to earth. It made me more relatable. Mm -hmm. I used to like, as a young kid, I kind of got off on this idea like, oh, I've never had to deal with that. Or like, Mm -hmm. I never think about that. And then it became my world that I thought about this. And Mm -hmm. you know what? Good. Like, wow, great that I am like other people. Mm -hmm. When I was younger, I used to, again, I used to just get off on this idea when anyone would say like, oh, she's so unrelatable or this aloofness and this mystery. I'm like, oh my God, I was thinking about it last night. You probably understand this. Writing about your life is the quickest way. It takes away the mystique, right? Like you are telling people, you're filling in the gaps for people. You're saying, this is how my mind works. Mm -hmm. And I would so much rather be understood 
than a mystery because there's so many people that hold on so tightly to showing up today in a way that, you know, going missing or creating this mystery in people's minds. They're not the rare ones. That is normal. I'd rather be someone that spells it out because Mm -hmm. I think that's more rare in today's world is to really be someone that allows themselves to be seen and understood. That's more rare. When you share those things, someone, and many times, lots of someone's. Yeah benefit from it you may never know it but just knowing that when someone is suffering or they don't know where to go writing a book or talking about how that's a healing example to write your stories or share them people find out that they're not alone i think it's important work i really do i say that if you've walked away from an experience and haven't learned everything you can and really mm-hmm. with that learning i think part of that is passing it along Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. was really a wasted opportunity. Mm-hmm. I agree yeah. with you. It's not about like healing yourself and overcoming it and then throwing yourself back out into the world and never letting anyone know that something happened, that that's why you are the way you are. Right. Right. It's about coming back on the other side and being like, oh, you respect that I'm show up in this way. This is why. This is how. And again, it goes back to like, you know, in your book, like, the importance of being a mentor. Absolutely. Yeah, like Mm -hmm. a mentor says that they've been challenged by things. Mm -hmm. And they want to see someone be able to rise up in their own way or in a way that, you know, might be like them. Right. And it gives them uh, hope. Hope is important. For some children and some teenagers and some adults, don't have anyone that wants to talk to them or listen to them. and that's painful. Mm. They don't have friends or whatever. And sometimes I think that writing stories or blogging or doing podcasts helps people that are out there that, that you'll never meet, I won't meet, but I feel really good about putting some things out there that someone may be able to use. That's giving back to the universe, mm. which is what you're doing with Thank your you. podcast. You're Thank giving you. back. Giving back and just like you felt about the girl that sat in your office. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's a way of giving back, but it's also just like a way of receiving, you know, like this, this work, this podcast, it really keeps me healthy. Like that's a big thing. And it's a two way street. An author that writes and no one reads it Mm -hmm. hasn't put their story out there. And I'm not being critical. I'm just saying, in fact, when people write and they're sharing a story, if I've gone to a book, I feel like it's important that I share with them a couple of things or that I talk about their bravery for writing their book mm-hmm. or it makes a difference or I read the back of it and, and see something that catches my eye. I try to be sure and share that with people because when people call in and want to talk to you, they're, they're saying, I need help. But you know, the other side of that is they're saying, wow, she cares, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. You know, I got a new client last night and uh-huh. the beginning of her message was just thanking me mm-hmm. for having a service like this. And, you know, I always make a point to be like, you know, thank you for choosing me mm-hmm. to open up to. Mm-hmm. You know, some people will write me back and they'll be like, oh my God, I never expected you to respond so quickly. Thank you so much for responding to me. And I'm like, I've waited my whole life to have you. Write. <laughs> you think I want to miss this opportunity? Like, what? Right. I'm not going to sleep on this. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I I have one last question for you. I coined a word. It's break up word to break up word. And I'm curious about what your take on that word might be. Oh, you catapult yourself to the next level. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You got that right. You passed the test. The teacher passed the test. I'm an educator. I still love getting A+. Plus. Oh, my God. You got it. Catapult. That would be the word in a nutshell. You're a special lady. Thank you. Stay in touch, okay? Thank you. Tell my audience where they can find you and what your book is called. I have a website, tyramanning.com. Then I have the first book I wrote, which is Where the Water Meets the Sand. And what was so special about it was it was my first book to write. Mm -hmm. And it won the Independent Book Publishing Award for memoir for the year. 
I was at the conference, and when they called my name, I just sat in my chair. I couldn't believe it. And then the second book is Your Turn, Ways to Celebrate Life Through Storytelling. Mm. It's fun to share your stories. You remember the good times and the bad times, and, and it helps you when you write to be grateful about things you may over time taken for granted. It reminds you of the people, the special people in your life that may have passed on but you remind yourself about what they did for you and how special they were. Those memories and your writing about them may encourage you to be a mentor to someone. And when we share our stories, we come together as opposed to being separated and focusing on our differences. And in this political world we live in, I think it's important that we all try to reach out with our best part Mm. and try to understand one another. So that's my thing. <laughs> I love that. Reach out with our best part. Mm-hmm. That's good. And I'm on Facebook, Tyra Manning. One is my author's Facebook, and the other one's myself, but my person who goes to Peru and likes to travel. Mm. So have a great day, and I thank you. Thank you to the audience for listening, too. Yeah, thank you to them, especially. Keeping the dream alive, all of you guys, you, my guest, and my audience. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. If this episode resonated with you, it would mean the absolute world if you could pass it on and let other people know about it. How you can support this podcast is really just sharing it, telling people about it. If you know someone that's hurting in their heart, tell them about Thank You Heartbreak. And if you want to be a guest on Thank You Heartbreak, reach out to me. You can find me on Instagram at Thank You Heartbreak, or you can email me directly at Chelsea, C-H-E-L-S-E-A, at BreakUpward, B-R-E-A-K-U-P-W-A-R-D, And if you're interested in one-on-one coaching sessions, you can visit my website, breakupward.com slash shop, where you can check out directly from my site. It's a super, 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 super simple process. Of course, I will answer any of your questions before you book. And again, you can email me at chelsea at breakupward.com. There's many different coaching options. And I would love to show up for you as you begin to show up in more wise and clarifying and secure ways for yourself. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.